What a wonderful time of worship. And hearing the scriptures read. <laughs> that a hint? <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we pray with the psalmist this morning when he says it's fitting to thank the Lord and sing praises to your name. It is fitting to proclaim your loyal love in the morning and your faithfulness during the night. For you, O Lord, have made us happy by your work. We will sing for joy because of what you have done. How great are your works, O Lord. And we do thank you, Father. We give thanks because you are near and you are near to us. And <clears throat> just as uh, Paul said in Philippians, we recognize your nearness to us more near than we are to ourselves almost. We join with people everywhere to tell of your wonderful deeds. And we pray for those that we know who are around the world, who are living in danger and sacrificing themselves on behalf of the least of these and the lost and the last, and many that may they know your strength and encouragement today. Lord, today we trust you, and we come to you, and we ask that you teach us your ways, and you give us, give our lives to you once more. As we make this, this um, commitment, weekly we come to worship, and may we learn to do good and seek justice. Let us embrace justice and mercy. Grant us humility, supply us with enough faith to, get our, to give our lives away with joy and give us strength when we are weary. Lord, we acknowledge <clears throat> that you uh, sustain us and you energize us. And Father, we just ask that you let the knowledge of your love fuel our commitment to you and also stir up our gratitude. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now i got to find my place again. There we go. <laughs> we are uh, continuing on a little bit differently today. Um, in, the, in the early years of the church, there was a, a group of men and women called the Desert Mothers and Fathers. And uh, they would go off and live in the, uh, in the desert, in the wilderness, by themselves and hermits. What they were trying to do, they were like they were hermits, they were trying to distance themselves from anything that might hinder them from their indwelling Christ, from becoming mature and becoming one with Jesus. And so they would kind of um, uh, suspend themselves from society as a whole, but that didn't mean they were totally separate. People would come to them and they would ask them for directions or prayer or instructions or words of wisdom, and they would tell these in stories and in parables. And there's one ancient story uh, about a family, a mother and a father and a young daughter who uh, go to a hermitage to go see a hermit. And they knock on the door and uh, the hermit opens the door and they said, you know, pardon us. We're sorry to, to invade your solitude at this point, but we need your prayers. As you can see, a wicked uh, wizard, an evil wizard, has turned our daughter into a donkey. And uh, he looked at them and he said, yes, I see. Well, come on in. And so he invites them in, and he says, he has the parents sit over there, and he asks the little girl, he says, 
are you hungry? And, she, and uh, would you like for me to fix you something to eat? And she says, yes, I'd like that. So he fixes her a meal, and they sit down, and they talk. And he asks her about herself, what she likes, what she's interested in, and, she feed, and he feeds her some food. And um, when the parents saw the, the, the sincere affection that he had for the girl and the love that he, he had in serving her food and taking care of her, their eyes were open and the scales fell off and they see their little girl there that she's no longer a donkey. And then they realize that the evil wizard did not cast the spell on her, he had cast the spell on them. And they began to see her as a donkey. And they were just so thrilled, and they cried, and they hugged, and they, they embraced each other, and they left, and they expressed their gratitude to the hermit for, for this wonderful gift. And uh, thank you for, for that. And the little girl looked at the hermit and said, Yes, I, I too am grateful. It's hard to be a little girl when other people think you're a donkey. And she goes, And it's really hard to be a little girl when you start to think that you're a donkey. And I think that's just this great parable about what the devil likes to do. Surround us with people who may think we're donkeys, and then we start to believe that we are donkeys. And it's hard to be a child of God when you think you're a donkey. I thought we would... Uh, look at Mark chapter 5 a couple of weeks, uh, and I know one, one other sermon is not going to solve all the problems, it's not going to heal us all, anything like that, but this story is so important. Uh, I mentioned this last week, that besides the crucifixion story, this is the longest story in the book of Mark, and it's really, really important uh, that we understand what is going on here, and what happened to this man. Um, when we think about demon possessions, we kind of think of what, are, um, what comes out of really the imaginations of authors, book writers, and movie makers, and we kind of get this idea of what that looks like. And maybe it does sometimes, but we kind of had the idea that this, the demons kind of sort of, sort of pick someone randomly and kind of enter the person like a hand puppet and then control that person from then on. Not saying that doesn't happen, not saying that it can't happen, Okay. Uh, but I'm not sure that's the most common way that that happens, that the demons deal with us. And like I said before, I, I believe in, in that mental illness is a thing, but I also believe that demons are a thing. And I don't know exactly how this works. I've only been called out twice for the sake of, of quote-unquote demon possession. Uh, once was a young girl who her parents were convinced that she was demon-possessed, and they called... Uh, me and one of our elders, Besalel, out to come pray for her. And it was kind of a friends of some of the members of our church. And so we went out there, and when we saw her, she had, she had gone through these convulsions, and kind of like what we see in Mark chapter 5 and Mark chapter 1. And it was, it was really kind of scary. And when we got there, she was totally unconscious, asleep on the mattress. And we prayed over her, we laid hands on her, we laid hands on the family, we, we anointed the, the apartment with oil and prayed over that. And frankly, I don't, I don't know what happened. Uh, they never really got contact with us to tell us what happened. We just took it by faith that, that she, was, she was doing well. The other, the other situation was about two in the morning, and I get a call from one of the other leaders in our church, Angel, and he says, uh, can you come? And it's like, I'm barely awake and so I get up, get clothes, get dressed and everything. And we go over to this, 
this, uh, this building, this uh, office building. And there's these two men. They're not superstitious, uh, you know, village people in the, in the mountains or anything like that. They're two professionals. They publish a magazine. And they said, we can't keep employees here because this room, this building is, is possessed by demons. And we started questioning what, what they were talking about. And they said, doors open and shut by themselves. And I talked about all this phenomenon. The most spectacular one was there was a cat that hung around in the building who talked. I never saw the cat talk, I never heard the cat talk, I never saw any of those things, and we don't know. And he said, we, we tried to get the priest to come in here, and he, he exercised the building, but it didn't work. So I guess they were going for the Protestants. <laughs> and uh, so they said, well, if nothing else, we'll try the Protestants. We'll, so we'll tell them. So we did, and we prayed over the building. Again, I have no idea uh, what, the, what the result was. Uh, we can only, can only guess. But that's only twice in what? 35 years of ministry. I think the demons work in a different way. And I, I really think when I look at this, this story in Mark chapter 5 and seeing this man, this mix of emotions, that sometimes he's pleading with Jesus and sometimes he's asserting and sometimes he's being aggressive. He wants to argue and then other times he's, he's self-hurting and he hurts others. And I almost feel like that maybe this was a, the fruit of a long process of demon harassment. And this was the result of this man killing himself, uh, hurting himself. And I, I'm wondering if that's, that's uh, what it is. There are three people on stage in this story. There's Jesus, the man with the unclean spirit, and then there's the enemy. And he's the third person. And he's the one that ultimately holds the blame for everything. For our lives, for the situation we're in, whatever it is. And we need a light to shine on that. And so what I thought I would do this morning is kind of talk about that. We don't do this very often. Talk about this a little bit of what this means to us today personally. What does it mean to talk about the enemy? So I think we need to know the enemy. If you're, whether you're talking sports or war, it's good to know the opposition. And I think we do need to know that because the, the Bible and the Holy Spirit shines a light on him to reveal what this is all about. Um, but I have to tell you, there's a warning and then there's a hope. The warning is that this is not fun. I don't, I don't think I've ever really preached on Satan or anything like that or the evil or the enemy really completely. It's not fun. I, I really do not enjoy it. Uh, but I do think that we don't understand the extraordinarily good news we have until we understand the extraordinarily bad news that we're in, that it's horrific. And I think we need this light. In the same way that lights shine, pierce the, the fog and the, and the darkness on runways so the planes can land, I think sometimes we need to shine the light on this so that we can land, in a way. And, and the, hope is, the hope is that we can expose him, and the hope is that Good has a future. Evil does not. There is no future for evil. It doesn't. It's not going to go. It's not going to end. But good does. And that's the hope we have. That our enemy is not God's rival. He is not equal with God. And I believe that this intense light 
can shine a light on that and shine a light on what we're dealing with. And I think that's very, very helpful. So we're going to talk about what, how did it all go wrong. And I've mentioned this before about the stories. You know, the, basically the Bible story is first asked, just answers questions of why is there something instead of nothing? And then how did it all go wrong? And, uh, I, and I was going to put up there, I decided not to, but I'm going to tell you what I was going to put up there is, what the hell happened? Because <laughs> I mean that literally. What the hell happened? That's what happened. What it went wrong? And then what did God do about it? And then how do we respond? That's basically the Bible story. And it answers those questions. How did it all go wrong? That, that this God created this wonderful thing this is creation. Out of love, he created it. And something happened that went all wrong. Something happened where we changed, where we decided to do something else and follow something else. And there was one person, one thing that caused this. And we're going to talk about that, what happened. And it is a person, and I believe it is real. Jesus treated it as a real person. I don't think the, I don't think the devil or Satan or whatever is, uh, we'll talk about that in a minute, is just a symbol of bad stuff. I think there is something very real, and I think Jesus dealt with it. He's not superstitious. He's dealing with concrete reality. The New Testament treats it as a given that there is an enemy in the creation. Uh, Paul talks, it, talks about it being the powers of the air, Peter talks about him being a lion ready to devour us. Uh, John, in, for, in his first letter, he talks about that the world is under the power of this evil one. So it's not superstition. It is something really, really real. Um, if you haven't read Screwtape Letters, I highly recommend you read that. C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters. That lays out in a narrative kind of form how Satan often deals with us. And I really, really tell you to, to read that if you haven't read it before. It's, uh, it's, it's entertaining in a way, in a weird way, but it's also very profound in the what he describes. Why did he rebel? There was something about this man, this thing, Lucifer. Uh, we only get Lucifer from Isaiah 14. It talks about some being that fell from the sky, that fell, that, that he, God did not create evil, but Lucifer is the, is, went evil and the demons became evil on their own accord, they became evil. God did not create, create it. But somehow they, they rebelled. And the other names for the Bible we have in this is uh, Satan, the, the, the accuser, devil, the divisor, divider. And in, like I said, Isaiah 14 talks about a, a, a character, a person, an angel named Lucifer, the bearer of light, who then rebelled. But why did he rebel? Why did he rebel? I think he rebelled out of envy. The Bible talks about pride being his sin, but in envy is his motive. That's what caused him to rebel. And that's different than jealousy. Jealousy can almost be sometimes positive. You know, if I see someone that's, you know, gosh, he's lost 10 pounds. I'm jealous. I need, I need, to, get on, I need to get on the treadmill. You know, they can, it can also promote you to do something good. Or if you're dealing with somebody that's dealing with the same addictions you have and how they're dealing with it, you kind of get jealous that he's getting, he's getting clean or he's getting well, and you go, gosh, I, you know, that kind of provokes me to do that. 
Envy is different. Envy is death. Envy means that something as good is happening to someone else, and somehow you want it to be bad. You want to take it away from them. Envy says that, oh yeah, that person, something's good happened to him, really makes me mad. I'm gonna, I, hope they, I hope they are miserable. And we want their jealous, their envy of them, envious of them. And I, I never thought about this. The, the person who, who kind of opened my eyes to this is a, is a Catholic nun that I met down at the Trappist Monastery outside of Newburgh. And she was telling me about this. This, this is how she sees it, that he is envious and because he doesn't want anyone to have joy, he's envious of them, and so he wants them to suffer. Who's he envious of? Us. He is envious of us. Why? Well, the way she explained it to me, and it makes sense to me, I'm just passing on, okay? You know, <laughs> I'm not saying that this is a word from God. I'm just saying this is a word from this really uh, elderly nun who told me this. And he said, she says what happened, what she imagines is that this angel, in the logic of love from heaven, where everyone loves and serves, that God made this great, wonderful creation out of love, and these angels, who are more powerful than us, who are more excellent than us, they were created to serve us. And that caused resentment in him. And so he rebelled. So he's only happy if we are suffering. And he is envious of us that we would be able to enjoy that. That's why he rebelled. He wants to get after us and his demons as well. That they are envious of us because they don't want us to be happy. What's his strategy? His strategy is we've got one plan, one root strategy. And that's this. At, back in the 60s, they used to talk about the Green Bay Packers had, had two plays. It's called the, the Green Bay Sweep. And they either run left or they run right. Everyone knew what they were going to do. Everyone knew the play they were going to call. It's just that they couldn't stop it. They had this wall of big guys, you know, plowing the way through, and they couldn't stop it. Well, Satan has one, one root plan, and that is to convince us that God is not good. That the God of the, of the heavens, the Yahweh, the God of Israel, is not a good father. There's suffering in the world because God wanted it. There is judgment in the world and he wants to condemn you because God wants it. He wants to punish you. He wants to criticize you. He wants to knock you down. It's God's fault. That's the strategy. And what does he use? He uses lies, division, flattering. Flatters our ego sometimes. Uh, he uses uh, damage, whatever he wants to do to degrade and enslave us. That's his tactics. And that's what he did to this man in chapter 5, is to enslave and degrade to where this man lives in the cemetery, cuts himself, screams, hollers, breaks shackles, enslave and degrade. He uses lies, he uses division, he uses flattering, he tempts us, he discourages us. He wants us to live in despair. Those are his tactics. And what is his end? To enslave, degrade, and ultimately destroy. He does not want us to be happy. 
And so Paul talks about us living in the reign of death. And we live in the reign of sin. And there's no escape. Nothing makes us feel more powerless than death. Because we can't escape it. We can't get away from it. But there is hope. It had to be somebody doing something for us. Fleming Rutledge uh, wrote a book on the crucifixion, which I think is probably the best volume, at least in modern times, written. And she writes this. She says, No one is capable of being captain of his own soul, master of her own fate. Each of us is worked upon by unconscious impulses of which we are not even aware and over which we have little control. Paul, unlike the typical American, does not think in terms of an autonomous human beings. No one is free in the domain of this world as it is. Either we must live our lives in the clutches of soul-destroying powers or we are delivered into the obedience of trust in another. That is the only way. Somebody has to do something. And it's not us. It can't be us. Enslavement, escape from enslavement and degradation is possible. And that's why I wanted Rob to read that chapter in Philippians chapter 4. And it's kind of got a parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 6 when he talks about the armor of God. And he says we need to change our thinking. Because Paul says this, he's not naive. There is a spiritual battle in each of our hearts. A spiritual battle of what's virtuous, he says, and noble and true and lovely and pure and just in battle with lies and fears and dangers and darkness. There is this battle within each of our hearts. That is the power behind the powers. And all the things that we see going on in Gaza or Ukraine or even in our own country, it's the power behind the powers. Each one of those leaders has a battle going on in his heart or her heart. It's the power behind the powers. The kingdom of God is not, Paul says, it's not just a matter of talk. It is a power. It's not just, in other words, the, kingdom of, the power of the kingdom of God is not in our arguments, not in our proofs of whatever. It is simply the quiet victory that is gained through our union with the indwelling Christ. It is a quiet victory that is gained by the union with the indwelling Christ. It's from the inside out. Our biggest vulnerability, our biggest vulnerability is that we live in this false self. That we live like we are donkeys. We start to believe we are donkeys. And that false self can be any another number of things. Uh, it can be the lies that you've heard your whole life that you're incompetent, that you're a failure, that you're a screw-up, that you know you don't matter, your opinions don't matter, that you're ugly, or whatever you've heard. And we start to believe those lies. It all comes from insecurity. The flip side of that is also insecurity, where you believe that I deserve everything. I am the center of the planet. I don't care what other people's feelings are. It's all about me. I want what I want, what I deserve. I don't have to play by the rules because I am so important. 
Those are the lies we live by. Those are the lies of the false self. It's hard to believe you're a child of God if you believe you're a donkey. And that's what he's getting at. This is not, this is the false self. This is who we think we are, not who we truly are. It's interesting that the side that grabs us in this story and all the Bible is that dark side. The thing that grabs our attention is this guy living in the cemetery, this guy who cuts himself with rocks, this guy who breaks chains and shackles, this guy that screams and yells. And that, that's the kind of things we're attracted to. But the climax of the story, the most important part of the story, is the man sitting there in his right mind, clothed, and the people were amazed. That's the point of the story. Don't get sucked in with all the spooky stuff. This is the point of the story, that he's in his right mind, his true self. He becomes, he's becoming the man he was created to be, clothed and in his right mind. And the people were amazed. And he says, go and tell them. Tell them what? Tell them about the mercy that God's been shown. The Son of God came to sabotage the devil's work. In 1 John, he says it clear out. Jesus came to destroy the power of evil. That's why he came. His weapon is mercy. Of all things, his weapon is mercy. You cannot create your true self. Your true self is created. You can't earn your true self you can't obtain your true self you can't climb up to train to get to your true self it's more of a falling into your true self it's that recreation you've kind of fallen into it jesus was not wasting his time with that man and he's not wasting his time with you it's not a waste of time as far as he's concerned he wants you to find your true self. A good therapist can help you cope in this world. They can help you kind of get by and, and live. But if you want healing, it comes from Jesus. And he recovers that, that, that divine DNA that we were all created with. And he restores it. And he realigns it. The mercy realigns us, totally changes us upside down. When, we, when Jesus is revealed to us, he also reveals who we truly are. And I believe those things kind of happen simultaneously. That the more Jesus is revealed to us, the more we realize who we truly are, who we were created to be. The true self is what he restores. And this discovery is only one by Jesus it's not done by us, where we discover again our divine DNA. None, none of us cross over that by our own merit, by our own effort, by our own purity, by our own perfection. We have to be carried across. And that's what Jesus does. He carries us across that. The bad news is there's no exception for death. There's no exception. Not a person in this room is exempt from it unless Jesus comes really soon. There's no exception. The good news is there's no exception for grace. 
Not one. No exceptions whatsoever. It's all, all about grace. And Paul is telling us that we need to think differently. That we need to exchange the lies for the truth. He says, think on these things. Don't think on this other stuff. Think on these things. And I think the Ephesians 6 passage is basically saying the same thing, except he's using the metaphor of armor. And he says, put on God's armor. The problem is we kind of come sometimes think it's really ours, but it's God's armor. And think about that. It starts with truth. We, we put on the belt of truth with the truth of who Jesus is and the truth of who you are. You're not who Satan tells you. The wicked wizard tells you who you are. Start with the truth. Start there. And then it goes on to put on the helmet of salvation to know that you are delivered. It's effect, it protects your brain. And then the righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. And we kind of think, oh, we got to be righteous. That's, no, that's your righteous. His righteousness is what you use. That's what protects your heart. Not yours, his. You put on his breastplate of righteousness to protect your heart. That's what it is. And, you, and then he says you have this shield of faith. And what's great about this is that is that we think it's just, my, you know, like, like Fleming Rutledge said, we think we're autonomous. We've got to have our own, own faith, own shield. But think about how the Roman soldiers fought when they were attacked by arrows. They all came to form the, the turtle shell, and they all held up their, their shields, and they protected each other. And, and there are so many times, I can tell you, where, where my faith has faltered, my trust has faltered, and I have to depend on your faith. And there are, and I've had to do that on the elder board. I've had to do that with my friends here. That sometimes my faith is just not there. But there's a, I, I use theirs instead. And there'll be times when yours is going to falter and you may have to use mine. I say, well, I have, enough, I have enough faith for the both of us right now. So you just depend on my faith right now. And we protect each other through that. Amen. And then he talks about the sword being the promises of God that we attack the attacker with the promises of God. And finally, he talks about our combat boots. Our combat boots don't run into war. What do they do? They run into peace. We are to be peacemakers. Totally different. He takes that metaphors of violence and turns it on its head. And this is what we do. We, we rethink differently. And we embrace those things, we celebrate them, we observe them, and we incorporate them into our lives. Our victory is a quiet one, gained through the union with the indwelling Christ. That's where the victory comes from. I'm going to close with a simple spiritual practice as we prepare for communion. Uh, Sue and I found out that this this uh, little practice uh, has been is very very helpful. We discussed this yesterday, and uh, and it's it's promoted. It's 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 put together by a psychologist named Tara Brock, which I don't think is a believer. Uh, but we looked at it and we go, this is really gospel. This is really Christian. You bring Jesus in this, and I think what she does is kind of mind tricks. But then we look at our resources and go, we have these incredible resources to get through this. And so she calls it RAIN, and we're just going to walk through it, but I'm going to put in Christian resources into it. 
uh, she says, first of all, you recognize. Where is the enemy accusing me right now? What lie is crippling me right now? Where is he causing division in my life? Where is he flattering my ego to manipulate me? What temptation is strongest in my life? These are all good questions. And where am I most discouraged right now? Just recognize where those are. What is that going on in my life? And then she says, admit, the A, which we would call confess. <laughs> we would call that a confession. Confess those times when I am tempted. Confess that I have fear right now or that I'm really discouraged, Lord, and confess that. And then maybe investigate, why am I feeling shame? Why am I feeling discouraged? Why am I in despair? Why am I afraid? Why am I tempted? Investigate what that is all about. And then finally, nurture. Nurture. Sit with the love of God and nurture it. Let it wash over you. Richard Rohr says, nurture it. And you keep at it until you reach the point where you love God back. And I'm afraid that a lot of time, in, in, and I may have done this too, that in churches we, we insist, you've got to love God, you've got to love God, you've got to love God. And when you look at the Bible, and especially the letters of John, for he first loved us, and you go, oh yeah. And instead of saying this command that I've got to love God, I've got to love God, which is Jesus told us to do, but let's enjoy his love where you get to the point where you cannot help but love him back. It is just as natural as breathing. So you sit with it and you let him love you till you can love him back. There is a spiritual battle uh, going on in the human heart of virtue and purity and justice and loveliness and beauty that conflicts with the lies and despair and discouragement and, and belittlement and, and enslavement and degradation. And this thing is going on in our lives. But there is no future for evil. It will soon disappear. And what will stay is good. What would stay is the love of God. It's so hard to believe you're a child of God. When you, think you're a when you think you're a donkey. And if other people are telling you you're a donkey, it's hard to be the child of God. And this, to me, is kind of one of the basics of fighting the battle and the attacks of the enemy. I think he's real. And I, and I think he's d damaging. And I think he's envious of you. And he's envious of me. And he wants us... To suffer because of it. He's not going to be happy unless we're unhappy. We are going to celebrate communion um, this morning. And communion is a memory of what Jesus did and looking forward to the day when evil does disappear. Uh, at the cross and the resurrection, we have several things that happen. 
we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. At the cross, he conquered death. The cross humiliated the enemy. And the cross reveals who we truly are. That we matter. And that we matter to God. And so I'm just going to take a, um, a few minutes and read spend some time in silence and then I want to ask that we pray out loud together a prayer of confession and then we will take communion and I'm going to go over these questions really quickly again and just spend time with God for just a few few seconds here and uh, this is a time to kind of do some searching into your soul and I will just go through the question where is the enemy accusing you right now What lie is crippling you right now? Where is he causing division in your life? Where is he flattering your ego? What temptation is strongest in your life? And where are you most discouraged? I'm going to ask you to pray with me. The prayer is on the screen. Let's pray it together. Lord Jesus, we have sinned times without number and have been guilty of pride and unbelief and to neglect to seek you in our daily lives. Our sins and shortcomings present us with a list of accusations, but we thank you that we will not stand against us. For all have been laid on Christ. Deliver us from the evil habit, every interest of former sins, everything that dims the brightness of your grace in us, and everything that prevents us taking delight in you. Amen. And based on the cross and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I can tell you with all confidence, you are forgiven.